welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here for this show. And we have an, uh, a fun topic to dive into today. But before we do that, uh, we're going to introduce ourselves like we do every time uh, we're with you because we just don't we just don't assume we are that you listen to us before and you know who we are. <laughs> so I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor in the Pacific Northwest, but I'm at my Connecticut house today. And uh, but I live in uh, in Battleground, Washington, and we got a place out there. And I serve a church uh, in that area, the uh, Westminster Presbyterian Church. And I've written a number of things, some books, and uh, I've been a professor of philosophy and a real estate investor, and yada yada yada. That's about me. Why don't we uh, send it over to you, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor specializing in the Reformation. Uh, I am a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and the Ministry Associated Reflections Ministries. Okay, Tom, go ahead and, and introduce both yourself and the topic for the day. All right, I'm Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, philosophy, Christian ethics, apologetics, a few other things, and I teach at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, among other places. <laughs> um, the topic, going woo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to fill us in on woo. That's that's obviously uh, a term that young folks use for something that guys like Glenn and I don't have any. Well, maybe I'm speaking for Glenn. Maybe Glenn has heard of woo, but I oh, yeah. I certainly don't. Okay. Okay. Oh, so yeah. I'm I'm right. I'm the ignoramus, but maybe well, I, maybe that's not new. Uh, maybe maybe yeah. I just always have been the. <laughs> I, I've been trying to find out what it means. I'll tell you what I think it means, and then Glenn can kind of correct me if if I if I don't get it right. But at least it's not called going woke. So, <laughs> and hopefully, hopefully, even though it is it it, it isn't all good necessarily, it is uh, not that bad <laughs> comparatively. Yeah, I would much rather be woo than woke, based on <laughs> based on what I read here in the article we're d- discussing today. So, going woo, um, the title, I guess, of the t- the topic would be transcendent longings from a from a uh, once reason obsessed Silicon Valley. Um, but the article I'm picking off of is uh, published uh, recently in the New Atlantic by Atara Isabella Burton, who. Yeah, actually, 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 Tom, it's the New Atlantis, not the New Atlantis. Oh, sorry, New Atlantis. Yeah, I, my t- I, I had some notes here, so that was my <laughs> typo. Um, Tara uh, uh, Isabella Burton is the writer. I don't, I don't know much about her. I just kind of read kind of the follow up at the end, and it said, author of Strange Rights: New Religions for a Godless World, published in 2022. Um, the world cannot give a novel published in 2022, and then uh, something coming soon called Self-Made, Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians. So someone someone who definitely has their antenna on the fact that religion and uh, identity formation have really become melted, you know, melded together. Um, But the title of this piece is Rational Magic, Why a Silicon Valley Culture That Was Once Obsessed with Reason is quote unquote going woo. Um, so you know, I guess a good place to begin is going with going woo. Um, I mean, my take is that it it's talking about something of a romantic turn in the Silicon world. Um, so Glenn, you know, maybe you can kind of shift it. I mean, but my from what I gather from the article, it's that the rational world and community that they have a part of. Um, was too reductionistic to the point of existential crisis, which opened them to have an antenna for things that formerly were considered irrational. Nothing new under the sun. Where in the world have we heard this before? Again and again and again. Go for it, Glenn. Yeah, the the idea of of woo, it's, you know, we... we you, if you think back, you know, there was a time when people would talk about the supernatural as sort of woo-woo stuff. Well, this is an abbreviation yeah. of that. I mean, you know, woo is where, where you're looking at, oh, new spirituality type things, which used to be called new agey stuff. It's where you're looking at, um, you know, a, a sense of the supernatural in uh, in sort of a popular meaning of the word. 
and looking to get some kind of connection or, or believing you've got some kind of connection with that world as opposed to just the the mundane world that that we all uh, live in in our daily lives so yeah i guess the thing that you know this reminds me of is in the enlightenment followed by romanticism yeah you know and now the, i think the difference between say the enlightenment uh and what we saw in Silicon Valley with this sort of super rationality is more the utilitarian character of the of the contemporary sort of thing. Whereas the Enlightenment people, the rationalists, uh, they just kind of delved into almost a well something closer to maybe what Christianity uh, uh, had to say about rationality. Although obviously the Enlightenment kind of worked really hard to take any of the theological, um, you know, influences out of it. But, but it was, it was more, I, I think that the enlightenment was different than what we see in Silicon Valley. And in, in so far as rationalism, um, in Silicon Valley had, as I noted, this kind of, um, utilitarian character, um, it was all about kind of instrumentality or, inst you know, yeah. using, using reason to get things that you want. Whereas I think that, well, you just take a look at the French revolution. What did they, what did they do? They made a God of reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, so, yeah. You know, I think the better analogy is the rise or the, the flourishing of spiritism after world war one. Well, that's interesting. Because what you yeah. see in world war one, uh, you know, all of the ideas of progress, you know, that technology and science were going to lead us into a better age. What we find is all of the technology and science led us into more efficient ways of killing people. Right. And, right. and so on, on a philosophical <laughs> level, you have a reaction against rationalism and the Enlightenment occurring there. Uh, some of the earliest movements toward uh, post-modernity show up during that period. But on a popular yeah. level, what you see is with the lost generation, you see people conducting seances to get in touch with their dead relatives, their 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 yeah. husbands or their sons, uh, you know, their fiancés, whatever. That moved towards – now, spiritism wasn't something new that had been around for a while. It actually flourished in America in the late 19th century along with New Thought, which is sort of proto-New Agey stuff. I mean, so th these things had been around, but they become much bigger in the wake of the dissatisfaction or despair with where modernity brought them with the war. And so what we see here in Silicon Valley is not, it, it's the same, it's sort of the same kind of despair, but it's more on an existential level. It's more, you know, looking looking at it and saying, you know, I've got all this stuff. I've had all this success, all of these kinds of things, and I'm still feeling empty. What's missing? Yeah, that's yeah. a that's a great that's a great contrast, Glenn. So in the first case, when we're talking about post World War One, uh, I no longer have legs. Uh, I thought I was supposed to have a flying car by now. Whereas, <laughs> whereas yeah. with Silicon Valley, I I, I have my technological, you know, sort of gizmo, uh, but I'm not any happier. You know, it's, it's interest. It's interesting with this and I'm going to come back to it cause I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to snail snail this a little bit, um, and walk into this, where we are in this conversation already. But one of the things I want to remind myself of is why in the world the Silicon Valley takes so long to get to what theologians and everything else were dealing with back after the Second World War. Um, but before I do it, let me kind of introduce the way she um, introduces this whole topic. And she brings it in with a character that she interviews, and she's going to use the name Vogel, which is, uh, if, if, my, if memory serves, that's a German word for bird. And she kind of plays off with the, the bird of Minerva and some things like that. So Vogel, who is Vogel in this? So it's a young man that the author interviews who's basically disenchanted with the Silicon Valley technocratic rationalism that you guys were just talking about. Um, something to which he at one time was wholly committed to. And, um, and so, quote, you know, to quote, I was... Once he finally ran up against its limit existentially, as Glenn was just mentioning, 
Um, he said, basically, I was very, very depressed at the time. Beauty in the world, no, notice the aesthetic breaking through. Beauty in the world had become hauntingly distant. So there's this kind of hunger and longing going on in, in this person that, you know, that kind of rationalism, reductivism doesn't attend to. Um, it existed over a horizon beyond some mountain, but I didn't have access to it. Um, and so where did this kind of lead Vogel? Um, well, I don't want to get there yet. I mean, it's going to be something she calls post-rationalism, but let, let's kind of back up. Where does Vogel begin? And this is very interesting for, I yeah, think, yeah, for some um, of our first, audience. Yeah. Yeah. For our audience. First of all, we, I've been, I think we've all been slamming this theme for a long time. One, raised a pastor's son and educated in evangelical Christian circles and a home homeschool home circles, not just home Christian circles, circles, homeschool yep. circles. And I and I hear this and I see this very very often. Um, then there's this teen uh, crisis of faith, which he will end up calling a deconversion. Um, now the interesting thing here, and I want people in our audience to pay close attention to the language because she uses it and the Vogel uses it. They call evangelical Christianity of this sort, quote unquote, traditional Christianity. Right. Yeah, that is a fundamental <laughs> error that yeah. Yeah, evangelical Christianity is a modern form of Christianity. Absolutely. Which which my my hunch is has all of the, the you know, the the emptiness of secularism. Uh, and this is kind of what my whole point of doing the whole, my end of the show has always been, is that that kind of modern Christian evangelical vision, whatever riches it still contains, have been so defanged from their richness because of the wider riches they're embedded in, um, classically, that when they're embedded in the modern secularist kind of um, you know, vision, they, 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 they lose even the ones they're supposed to keep. Yeah, let, let, let's let's stop there a second, if you don't mind, Tom. I'd yeah. like to I'd like to say something for evangelicalism, even while we're critiquing it. Yeah, you know, if you think about the fundamentals, you know what uh, people refer to as fundamentalism is based on an attempt to preserve the supernatural character of Christianity, supernatural understood in the in the best sense of the term, and it became more or less associated with a kind of dogmatic pig-headed uh, legalism in the minds of many people. And even in practice, you know, seeing, you know, you know, you know we, we all know people who have just done a real disservice to the Christian faith by the way they've tried to be faithful to the Christian faith. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but anyway, but, this, but so that was the, that was the agenda. Nevertheless, evangelicalism, particularly in its post-World War II sort of expression, uh, really made peace with the market, made peace with kind of the um, corporate world, and privatized the faith to such a degree that, you know, you could be a Christian. And, and, and you know, again, I don't want to, I don't want to be unfair. I, I think that people who were Advocates of this were thinking about people like Daniel or Joseph who found themselves yeah. in hostile environments and were trying to be faithful. So I'm not saying this was something that was uh, malicious in character, but, yeah. but there were a series of deals that I think were made. Yeah. And, and, the, and the objective was to preserve the Christian faith. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now, just just to point out where this ends up leading, when the idea that um, you know this privatized faith and um, making your peace with corporate America and all of that, where this ends up going are people who are on what's it called, just fans, who do what amount to being pornography as evangelical Christians and saying that this is, you know, this is honoring to God. You know, that's the extreme where this, this, right. this can lead. I just read a, an interview with somebody who fell into that category. 
Hmm. Well, that, that I knew there had to be something you would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I that, that analogy myself. But but yeah, we we ought to talk about that for, in another show because if <laughs> it, it reminds me of when when Billy Graham uh, had a conversation with a guy that was in the mob and he said he wanted to be a, a mobster for Christ and Billy Graham had to <laughs> had to kind of just you know sort of talk him out of the idea. Yeah. <laughs> And and I think I mean I think you know again I yeah I, I think it's fair not to be too harsh in the sense that I mean I I don't know that I mean what happens is you start working with a momentum um, you know a long time ago Christianity started to leave a lot of its riches and after its infighting and and everything else is it tried to calm it down through the enlightenment to kind of stop fighting each other if you will that's not the only reason for that but that that kind of part plays a part you know controlling those kind of passions <laughs> and keeping them out of the mark you know the public so that you know so that civic you know life can can go on um christianity trying to find its place in all of that um, it, the nature, the understanding of creation and nature was slowly shifting and it shifted philosophically and theologically years ago, but it's really not making its impact until now. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's so, so to sit here and beat, you know, kind of a generation ago, evangelicals over the head for being caught in that shift without knowing it. I don't, I don't, you know, maybe that's too, too harsh. I think what I'm saying is that you know, let's look at where we've ended up and realize we have richer things to draw upon to get, you know, to reorient our riches back into the, the thicker, you know, frame that that we've been given in Christ. Yeah. And, and, and we, we see it all over the place. We see young people who are raised by very engaged and loving evangelical parents who were you know, for the most part, theologically sound. And then those kids are looking for more. They're looking for, yeah. they, they love their parents, they respect them, yeah. but but they're like, something's missing. And yeah. they're the ones that are going to orthodoxy. They're the ones that are going back to sort of, you know, to Catholicism, crossing the Tiber. And, yeah. and I think that one of the things that we need to do as Protestants is say to those kids, you know, the, the early Protestants were trying to preserve the best yeah. of you know the the tradition while correcting the some of the errors that they wanted That's to correct right. they weren't jettisoning uh, right. the, the whole christian history yeah. you know, all christian history or christendom that wasn't yeah. their idea no that's right and, and you know some you know there's a younger you know kind of certain sword wielding you know calvinist out there who who loves to chop off the head of those of us who want to retrieve certain aspects of the riches of Christian faith as sort of a, a postmodern, you know, embrace. It has nothing to do with that. It has it has something to do with actually seeing through the way in which the Christian faith became distorted in many ways through the impact of enlightenment and its impact even on churches. And so rather than running the direction of postmodernity and the like, we're running to actually the wisdom traditions that have shaped and gave rise to, you know, the scripture gave rise to and, and is a kind of back and forth between scripture and the church's reflection on it. And so what we have going on here is, uh, you know, you, you said exactly right. The, the early reformers could take this for granted and they didn't need to spell it out because it was already spelled out. But as Christendom kind of breaks down, if you will, it starts to kind of divide and then you start to have something general fill the void, um, whether it's natural religion, natural philosophy, you know, there, there's a kind of enlightenment interpretation of those things. You are increasingly see the riches of classic Christian views of creation and redemption get, you know, get thinned out, if not, uh, you know, weakened. And I think that's, you know, to the point where in an evangelical church, you can't even have someone mark the difference between being male and female as a God-given distinction in the created order as the image of God. I mean, that's when you know something has fundamentally gotten off track. This isn't, this isn't progress towards a deeper Christian understanding of reality. This is a deep move away from it. Yeah, and, and, and it's happening throughout uh, sort of the popular megachurch sort of uh, yeah. subculture. Um, I just came across some stuff here recently. It just, well, it just, 
it, it appalled me, but it was also something that you could just kind of see coming a mile away. And, and it, it deals with some of this stuff. You know, when you have a person like, say, Tom Ward, who is an open theist, writing, oh, yeah. writing books about how we should fully in, embrace uh, LGBTQ, whatever alphabet soup, you know, thing of the day, you say to yourself, well, you know, at least I do. Um, we could see that coming about, you know, a decade or two back, Tom. You're not that <laughs> you're not you're not really as sharp as you think you are. And you made some compromise. You you, you have zero uh, regard for the wisdom of the past. You, you, you think that you just can kind of reinvent Christianity on the spur of the moment in the in the sort of the cultural milieu that we find ourselves in. And and anyway, well, and that's where you end up with, you know, I think with with the kind of what they're saying in this article is traditional Christianity isn't. It is it is a, you know, a weakened form and a, a deformation of Christianity, if you will, at best. Yeah. Um, I, I know John Riss calls it deformed Augustinianism. And I think that that probably does characterize both modernity and modern forms of Christianity of that stripe. Yeah, the, the yeah. idea of it being a weakened form of Christianity, I think, is is interesting because... Well, before they came out with mRNA, so-called vaccines, the way one would vaccinate someone is you would give them a weakened form of the pathogen that causes the disease. So you give them a weakened form of the disease and they develop immunity to it. Yeah. What happens when you give people a weakened form of Christianity? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. They develop an immunity to it, right? And then there, there grows this kind of almost protective antagonism against, against it. We, I see it as I try to bring things that were taken for granted by the reformers into evangelical and reform circles. There is this often is often this this you know oh you're trying to basically bring you know Catholicism into the context or you're trying to bring something because it's strange and it is strange. And yet it should be most familiar in, in many ways. And, and, and they don't realize that when you, when you really read the way the church has read the scriptures and you, you understand faithfully that the spirit is going to guide the church into all things, um, doesn't make the church's reading infallible, but it does mean that the wisdom is not just arbitrary, right? right. Um, it's like a parent. It's like a father. He's not infallible. But you know what? There's a lot of wisdom there through their negotiating with reality in life that when they tell their child, you know what, don't stick your finger in the light socket, it's probably wise to take a pause and say, you know, okay, maybe there's a good reason he told me that, whether or not I can prove that scientifically or not <laughs> at yeah. the moment. <laughs> yeah, re re returning to the, to the article, which is a really, I think, eye-opener for me anyway. Yeah. Um, even though it's predictable in a, in a sense. Nevertheless, the, the confidence, the hubris of Silicon Valley <laughs> and its kind of naive confidence in uh, human instrumental or sort of instrumental reason yeah. uh, to, to create a better world, even a perfect world. It's all falling apart. And we've got young people like this guy that we were just talking about who left the, you know, sort of homeschool evangelical world that he knew and dove into that super optimistic utilitarian rationality and now finds himself disillusioned once again. But Chris, he does come via your mission field. He comes through Seattle, Washington. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, the left coast collects all of the loose, you know, sort of particles that have, uh, kind of, uh, you know, gotten to float around in our country. It is, it is all, it's like somebody takes all, you know, like a, you know, some kind of uh, bag and just shakes it and all of the loose stuff goes to the bottom. Well, and it's interesting that, you know, as, as she kind of talks about the Vogels move into what you were just talking about, this kind of Silicon Valley rationalism, um, it, it's strange because this stuff was apparently going. I was in Oxford at the time as a student, doctoral student, and this stuff is right going on right there. I had no, I had no clue it was going on. And it says the rationality community, which is what this this guy moves into, 
Um, it started out with some few blogs in the early 2000s. I didn't even know blogs were around in the early 2000s. I was looking up, you know, I was just immersed in academic work. But but then, you know, the first was, quote unquote, I love the language, overcoming bias, right? It sounds very woke. Um, founded in 2006 and affiliated with Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute. Um, co- you know, there's kind of an economics professor, but yeah, you're exactly right. The whole notion is that through this kind of reduced, reductive rationalism, you could call it scientism, I think is another way of putting it, th- that through technological development and just kind of rigorous application of a reductive reason, you could basically eradicate all untruth um, and you could also fix all world's problems. Um, but they were worried about some things is that our reason could develop something beyond our capacity to control. This is kind of your Elon Musk is tied to this kind of community. And, and this was kind of eye opening in that sense, because it made sense of Musk's recent kind of uh, existential limit placed on AI tech, because. I think he's someone of this community and sees its advantages has been part of it, but is starting to see where we can end up. And he's starting to take up that, that, you know, group and communities ethical concern that AI could actually become a very harmful thing, even if it could also be a savior. Yeah. I, I, I also hear kind of echoes of Ayn Rand and all of this. Yeah. Uh, with this, this sort of rationalist sort of idea, this ideology of rationalism, um, strikes me as, as Randian, but, um, also reminds me of some people, well, objectivism and all that kind of stuff. So, so basically, you know, you're, you're, there's a longing for reality. There's a longing for truth. There's yeah. longing for the, 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 the thing that we find ourselves in and kind of in a sense that it's marvelous. It's worth understanding. It's worth, um, kind of clearing our minds to, to know it. I think all that's great, but, but then there's this kind of, there's also a a hostility to mystery. There's a hostility to, to anything that can't be reduced. Yeah. There, there is this relation to reality that is very truncated and limiting. And I think, you know, I, I think it exhibits our fallenness um, because we, the, the, anything that kind of doesn't, becomes something manageable and controllable, becomes something threatening and fear. This is why our own developments, I mean, our own capacity through our reason to develop a technology that could actually undo us is a testament. And this is why they're threatened by to our own being made in the image of God. And I think, I think for them that they're more afraid of us being made in the image of God than the AI tech that they're afraid we create. Um, That's just my hunch. But you see, they do. You, you hit it right on the nose. There was a kind of what, what attracts Vogel to this? Because I, I, this kind of stuff would have been boring to me, even, even as someone when I was not a believer. I, I, I found the romantics much more attractive than the, this stuff. But one of the stuff that it does give them a kind of, uh, you know, a pseudo meaning and purpose. Um, they become almost gods in their own way because the, through technology, they're going to self-direct um, but also there is a, a little telos in a, you know, you know, in a, un, you know, in a purposeless world. And that is to save humanity and fight for our survival. So these things were ingredient and you talk, they were willing to sacrifice themselves, um, their own well-being and flourishing. And, and, and they would make a lot of money, but they would basically, con, you know, contribute to global health initiatives. You know, your, your Bill Gates in the, of the world. Yeah, I can't think of anybody more, I guess. <laughs> kind of appalling or <laughs> even uh, uh, alarming than Bill Gates. I don't follow him very closely, but his lack of self-awareness is just stunning. You know, yeah. I, I don't think that he really has a sense of, of how he comes across or even, I don't know if he even understands himself. I just think he's completely yeah. taken up in this quest to manage reality yeah. Yeah, I I still remember uh back in the 90s, early 90s I believe it was, when there were a lot of people who were talking about Bill Gates as the antichrist. 
<laughs> at this point, I'm beginning to think they may be onto something, but that's another he's, matter. He's definitely he's definitely a creep incarnate. <laughs> yeah, and and we were getting a little clue or a little hint every once in a while, a little glimpse at even something I don't know, gross and uh, sexually um, perverse about the guy. Yeah, yeah, we're starting to see that stuff come out. And, you know, even, you know, when you start getting into stuff where you're buying up all the, you know, the food, you know, farming properties and creating fake meat. I mean, you're really talking about a dark, sinister psychology. Um, but yeah. you're, you're looking at the dark places. I think this kind of instrumental reason takes you when ungoverns by a transcend the proper transcendent right. Um, uh, right. center. I mean, and this is what's, what's interesting about Vogel is that the, it became disillusioned with a utilitarian, um, you know, he, he started to see this kind of, quant, you know, quantifiable markers of success are disturbing. They're, they're, they're soulless is the language used. And, um, and then also this kind of effective altruism. Um, what he called, you know, kind of depowered a lot of people. It made them less interesting and vibrant as people and more like trying to fit into a slightly soulless bureaucracy of good doing. And so this kind of woke that entered into that kind of Silicon Valley, I think backfired for figures like Vogel because it, it looked very superficial and it wasn't participating in the good as classic visions had, especially Christianity, so much as from the outside, affirming almost a we're committed to the good. It's almost like the Pharisee, right? You you have your outside, you know, thoroughly exemplifying virtue, but your inner core is rotten to the core. You detach. You're not a participant in the good. You just you just kind of mimic it. Um, you try to act like you're a part of it, but you're not. You're of your father, the devil. I mean, that's the language Christ uses. Um, but one of the things he notes, he longed for forms of genuine friendship, you know, based not on utilitarian goals of what he calls kind of allies, moral allies in, in, in a cause. And so this is one of the things I think the inbreaks, we are made for communion, first with God and each other. One of the things that Christian life, the first things that it does is turns us from enemies to friends of God, but then puts caritas, is the language of the Latin, of between human beings. So genuine friendship not grounded in some kind of instrumental end, but grounded in reality. Um, and so this will become something called a meta-tribe. The group tries to almost develop this, this, this community together as they break away from rationalism and open themselves up to something more where they try to get a hold of friendship in a deeper way. So, the, you know, the transcendental dimensions of real friendship that are found in Christianity are longed for in our humanness, but they're not findable in, in the kind of empty world of, of rational community. Yeah, I'd like to reflect on that a little bit more. You know, one of the things I, I would say comes to mind is that you know, in the household, which is something I've written a lot about, you, you, the communion comes first and then the, voc the, the work comes second. Now, obviously, yeah. the work is tremendously important and it's what we do together in a household. Yeah. Um, in a pre-modern society, it would be a subsistence economy. We're all kind of at work to, to make a living. But what we've done in the modern world is, we, you know, we keep breaking things up. We keep segmenting things. We keep separating them. Uh, so what occurs is that work is 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 transferred to the workplace where um, things are much more efficient, more productive on a larger scale. And then we we reduce that, you know, a household to just a place where, the, you know, we go at the end of the day to hang out with the people we love. But we don't do anything with them that's productive. So it seems like what I hear him describing is okay he doesn't have a household where he's got communion any longer maybe 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 that's kind of an important thing to to note here but but he isn't in, in a you know in a world where everybody is trying to make a difference quote you know and to do it effectively quote and efficiently and so forth 
but there's no substratum. There's no basis for it in human community. It's just been abstracted to the point where we're just talking about, okay, did we achieve our goal or not? Did we feed 5,000 people or not? You know, you know what I'm saying? By the time you give them bread alone, then what are they, you know, okay, you fed them for a day. That, that is good. There's nothing minimal there. But I, I think that that kind of runs, I think that's where their disenchantment started to develop. So let's say, you know, it's like I, I once asked my, my, uh, my oldest when he was studying Martin Luther King Jr. in school, I said, now that you got freedom, then what? And he kind of was like, yeah, why would you even say that? And I say, I say it. Because what we do and how we understand freedom is very significant. That it isn't simply about having the ability to do whatever we want, right? It is about orienting ourselves to truthfully enact ourselves in, with the integrity of the creatures that we are, you know, to not let something else get in the way of it. And so, I mean, it's the same thing here. I mean, there's nothing wrong, and I fully am committed to serving in ways that we can, those in need. But that isn't the end game. If, if, if there isn't a fuller vision that you bring the gospel with the giving of cold water in Jesus' name, right? It isn't, you know, it isn't simply the gospel not giving the cup of cold water or giving the cold co- water without the gospel. Those things are connected. Why? Because it immerses it in the whole reason for why we're here and where we're going. And, and so, yeah, you can have all this altruism and, and all this kind of patting yourself on your own back. But if you don't know why you're doing it or what the significance of it is other than just survival, and even that is becoming blurred with the whole notion of maybe, maybe it's good that we, we stop living here so that the environment can go on. You know, you're starting to, in those circles with the strong environmental <clears throat> emphasis, see the human is the problem. And so, you know, helping alleviate those things. So there's a lot of disenchantment, I think, that, that can come in that world once you realize that when they work with su- such a fragmented vision and such a reduced vision, it doesn't, it doesn't answer our fundamental human cries and hunger um, the way well, they, you know, they want it to. Yeah, we, we need to pause for a moment, too, and look at the entire notion of effective altruism, which terminologically, that sounds perfectly fine. Sounds like a great idea. You know, you, you want your money to be spent effectively, right? But the problem yeah. is that effective altruism is completely statistical. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. doesn't deal with individuals. It deals with statistics, yeah. And if if some individuals have to be, you know, sacrificed for the greater good, you know, or not helped for the greater good, so be it. As long as you're doing yeah. the most for the most, the, the most you can for the most number of people, utilitarian, you're, you know, you're good. And it's a fundamental problem with utilitarianism in general. It ignores the individual. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think there's also this uh, kind of sense that, there's something wrong with this, uh, not just project, but the people who are kind of in, in drawn to it. <laughs> so, sometimes, you know, uh, in, in a joking way, people refer to techie types like Elon Musk and Bill Gates as, as uh, you know, guys who suffer from some kind of, uh, what's the what's the word I'm looking for? It begins with an A, aut- uh, autism. autism. Right. Yeah. The, the, there are the t- article says a lot of these people attracted to that field are in that so, that yeah, spectrum. Yeah. yeah. yeah so Actually, they, there have been studies abs- that show that people in uh, engineering, sciences, math, those kinds of things tend toward autism, where people in the arts tend toward uh, depression. Well, yeah, that's an interesting thought. <laughs> but but getting back to the autism, you know, what you have with autism is a kind of focus on a narrow range of things to the exclusion of the rest of reality. And that's one of the reasons why these people have a hard time, I, I think, socially in, in, in many cases where they just lack the, the, the ability to read small, I guess, signs that would let them know how to get along with others better or to read the situation well, they're just 
blinkered most of the time. <laughs> now, the, on, uh, on the positive side, they're very bright in a very narrow range of things. Yeah. You know, if, if you if you have a problem with any of those things, they're the people you want to turn to. So I, I we we tend to pathologize things that I think are gifts. Sometimes, you know, there are people who are wired this way by God for a purpose, and we don't need to drug them up. But we do need yeah. to help them understand they need other people to kind of fill out their their understanding of the world because they can't see it all. They just yeah. see this narrow thing. Well, and I think that's the, 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 the insight that this Vogel comes to is that the way we've narrowed the world is – dehumanizing and leading to depression and everything else. And, and there, there is something else there. And one of his lines is that, that where he basically says is I, I felt detached from history itself and my participation in it. So what you have here, I mean, we've talked about theological is someone who radically sees themselves as a non-participant in the reality that they are already a participant in. And this is something we talk about, kind of the, the way they see themselves as this detached rationality, that they're kind of, they're separate and, and they're able to kind of piece reality within their frame of reference and, and govern it, give it meaning, give it everything else, determine it. They're gods. And I do think that, that there is, you know, our fallen nature that rejects our, um, called the glorification, that's the Western way of putting, or called to, to partaking of the divine light, as the way the early church put it, that call is deformed here. And now they see themselves as basically, you know, thinking of themselves as gods in one sense, realizing they're not in another, and yet having this immortal longing in the end to, to retrieve something of that. And so when they move towards this, what they quote, they call these irrational dimensions which allow for a religious dimension or a transcendent dimension to enter into their world, they start what she calls post-rationality. They embrace this kind of trend of post-rationality. Um, and But they're really not looking at it the way uh, in terms of conversion, embrace of something that uproots you. <clears throat> You're not being uprooted here. It's really looking at tradition and ritual and symbol and myth because of their beneficial effects, right? It's the, it's the, you know, it's the riches that these things can provide for you to have meaning, purpose, and a fuller kind of existence, rather than an uprooting you and placing you back in the reality where that is a given along with it, like like Christianity. Yeah, this is of course the modern turn. I mean, it's all yeah. about kind of the 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 reception of reality and not. And kind of a, a participation in reality itself, um, you know that that turn that you know we see with Descartes or any modern uh, yeah. you know thinker, where the starting point is my perception of the world and not the world itself, and there's this conviction that the world in itself can't be known. Mm-hmm. But um, well, what are, where does that lead? That leads to all kinds of silly stuff and including the kind of alienation that this guy is describing and you know transgenderism <laughs> you know you just name it you know it's, it's all there um yeah and there's there's got to be a way back to reality and and people have tried to find a way back without falling back to you know into the christian faith or you know noting the cent- sort of central place of faith in our epistemology. They, they, they want it faithless. They, they don't yeah. want any, any, pla- any place for faith or any role left for faith in things. Well, what, what you see uh, Vogel and the other guys here doing, one of the things that I was struck by is it's a very sort of non, non-dogmatic approach to solving the yeah. problem of transcendence. And it's basically you find the particular combination of things that work for you and you can yeah. incorporate this into your rationalism and all of that as, as a supplement. And that Absolutely. that is exactly uh, the route that the New Agers or what I prefer to call New Spirituality did. Um, they talked yeah. about finding um, uh, one of the popular terms was psychotechnologies. Notice yeah. the language. Uh, psychotechnologies that you could use to 
move you toward um, achieving some sort of enlightenment. Um, not always using that language, but that's what it came down to. So you could be involved in a Wiccan coven, go to an African drum circle, take your yoga <laughs> class, um, and um, maybe do Tai Chi or something like that, and then go hang out with guys at the Renaissance Festival who were neo-pagans, and it was all good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then code for Google uh, from your home office. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> now that, that, that's the one thing that's new that's added to it. But it's yeah. fundamentally, these guys are going back to what the woo-woo New Agers were, were, were doing back in the 70s and 80s, just in sort of a slightly, only slightly updated version. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly right. And one of the things she does pretty fairly in the, in the article is she talks about the kind of widespread. I mean, you have you do have a, with this group a kind of a, a, a moving away from our old categories, left, right, center, politics. There, there is a willingness to kind of get away from that conversation, if you will. But they're, they, they are not abandoning the kind of modern reductionism of this basically being um, a, a, a voluntarist view in which we are choosing and picking those things that are meaningful and provide that extra content to our to our life. It's what I remember Dave Bentley Hart once called it, the dreamier side of the modernists' personalities. You know, uh, that's one way of putting it. It's it's you know they'll put the little um, you know uh, symbol or dream catcher, right? They'll put it in their their you know. There's all these different things, or they may become more serious about a certain kind of practice or ritual. Um, but you also have it on the, on the right, you know, developing or, and, and I use that word arbitrarily, um, you're kind of people fascinated with the return to myth and neo-Jungian categories with Jordan Peterson, who interestingly has been a, a gateway um, often in Canada for people to at least consider these things. And they end up eventually abandoning Peterson and becoming embracing kind of uh, classic Christianity. I just heard from somebody this past weekend at a conference that they're getting more and more younger people coming into their churches saying, okay, well, Jordan was a step, um, but we now see the limits of that step and we see a fuller vision in here. So so interesting, you could see some of this as steps away from reductionism and a good opportunity of mission to speak into how what a full vision looks like and uh, but you you are seeing a, a, a big turn. But one of the things you see, I, Chris, you mentioned. Well, I know we're running out of time here. Um, but one is they are disenchanted with Descartes. Finally, <laughs> um, a quote: "Our Cartesian reduction of rationality to sort out com computational abilities, and then the reduction of that to just communication and communicative manipulation. We have lost a lot." The notion of rationality that most of the ancient world thought they were referring to, they use words like logos and ratio. And those older notions of rationality were bound up with wisdom, were bound up with practice, and they would use the imaginal. And this is something we've talked about here, the way in which classic wisdom traditions are bound up with communities that push your identity out of yourself towards the towards the wider web of roles and relations and hierarchies in which virtue is mandatory because you have to form into certain kind of people to be able to navigate reality <laughs> and yeah. orient yourself in it right yeah this is the thing that that I saw in this article as as the author is describing this guy is it Bogle mm -hmm. um he strikes me as a guy who spends way too much time online. Yeah, pro pro probably single. Uh, yeah. he, he's bright, uh, but bright in a in a very narrow range of things. He's, I suspect. Now, this is probably not fair, but I suspect that he's not actually competent in the in in sort of the physical world, even at a social level. I suspect that he's a he's a person who is kind of fallen in on himself. And and one of the reasons why his life is empty and why he's looking is because he doesn't have any real demands on his time or his his gifts. So, yeah. you know, when you have kids, when you've got, say, yeah. uh, people who depend on you at work for things that 
that need to be done and everybody is going to, you know, benefit from. Well, when you have those kinds of demands on, on, on you, in one way you could say, well, I'm bound. Yeah. But another way you could say, my life means something. There you're, are a lot of stopped. other people. You're yeah. stopped in the world of meaning. Yeah. You are, you are in it. You don't have to create it. You're in it. That's right. So I've got, you know, three granddaughters and two more grandchildren on the way. I've got three grown children and their spouses. I've got my wife. I've got my church. I don't lack for meaning. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can yeah. think of a zillion things to do at any, any moment of the day yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that are important, not just yeah. for me, but for other people. Yeah, you're not you're not not participating, right? <laughs> you're you're in in reality, and it, and it is there qualifying you in ways that are fundamentally meaning you and orienting you towards things. I mean, there's one set of questions that are asked at the uh, much earlier. Um, and it, it talks about this hunger. And, and I get it with this person. I mean, he's a human made in the image of God. They hunger. I mean, I re, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget um, Schmemann's famous work for the life of the world. What is the first thing you notice about the human being in the Garden of Eden? They hunger, right? And food is supplied, right? They hunger and thirst. Um, and we're, we are made incomplete um, where, where you talk about, you know, Calvin right at the beginning of the Institutes, where our own lack of self-sufficiency our hunger, if not, you know, with with bread and water, ultimately we end up hungering and thirsting again, but we keep doing it because we hunger for the bread of heaven, right? And in the water of life, which Christ is. And so this is, this is there. So their reductionisms can't eradicate it. Their fallenness can't eradicate it. The problem is, is, you know, is one of the, uh, the one who in the article, she said is a, a person who started this way, ended up embracing Catholicism. And her questions was, can we aim it? the right way? Can we take the hunger and direct it towards the source that, that fulfills it? And it's interesting because one of the figures of this movement, this post-rationalism, it's named Chapman at the, you know, a David Chapman or something along these lines. Um, he shows that this group at this point, if they embrace this way of reading it, is not aiming it the right way. Um, he is still governed by Kantian assumptions and relativism. And this is kind of the quote. Chapman writes on his website, <laughs> you know, talking about detached from, from real meaning, entails, you know, he says uh, that uh, meaning is real but not definite, okay? It is neither objective or subjective. It is neither given um, by an external force nor a human invention. So, you know, he's he's got time to play with, with dialectic, um, it requires, he says, taking from the eternalist stance the commitment that human beings do and should experience the world as a locus of meaning, but from the nihilist stance, the rejection that there's any single eternal source of meaning behind it. So what you give on the one hand, you take away on the other. And so if it, if it is back down to my constructive capacities to give meaning, purpose, definition, and identity myself, I fall back in on myself. I'm not a participant in the reality that's out there. I'm not, therefore, participating in the orientation of my desires and hungers towards those things that will actually complete and fulfill them. And so chat has taken away the very thing in his openness that that should be should have been given to this to Vogel. Yeah, the thing about Chapman that that I this, you know the things you read, the thing that strikes me is he's still living in his head. You know, <laughs> it, there are no people out there. In other words, he's he's talking about abstractions. He's talking yeah. about uh, you know uh, sort of summaries of reality that are yeah. perhaps more or less real. You know, subjective, objective you know, uh, a single given. Re- well, what about people? Dude, yeah. have you ever made a sacrifice for a human being? Yeah. I'm not talking about an abstraction called the human race. Yeah. I'm not talking about all those people who are starving from hunger. I'm talking about a, a, a person, you know, personally, who has a claim on you. Yeah. That, that, that's where meaning is discovered. Yeah. yeah. Um, d- two quotes that I thought were kind of interesting. One of them, going back to what I said before about the psychotechnologies. Religion, meditation, magic, occultism, shadow work, all these in the Metatribe model are mere avenues for self-development and self-transcendence. Cast a love spell, go to church, attend to five rhythms, ecstatic dance class, 
take psychedelic mushrooms, all of these functionally amount to the same thing. An injection of what foundational post writer David Chapman calls meaningness. <laughs> meaningness. <laughs> meaningness. Yes. Now, yeah. Now, now I get why people <laughs> avoid other people. We're fallen. And when people have a claim on you, they might use that claim to manipulate you and uh, sort of damage you and, and try to try to get from you things that they don't have a right to have. I yes. get that. I get that. So maybe some of this retreat in the, into the abstract, this retreat into ideas has to do with that. But, but Fine. There, there's another side to this. And mm -hmm. what, what they're grasping for is the image of God, only they don't know it. Listen to this next quote. If there's a doctrine underpinning both rationalist and post-rationalist thought, it is this quintessential liberal faith in human potential combined with an yeah. awareness of the way in which human imaginal power does not merely respond to but actively shapes the world around us. The rationalists yeah. dreamed of overcoming bias and annihilating death. The post-rats are more likely to dream of integrating our shadow selves or experiencing oneness. But both camps evince a profound faith in what we might call human godliness. The idea yeah. that we are not only the recipients of the world around us, but also its creators. Indeed, it's little wonder yeah. that so many Metatribe members find themselves drawn to esoteric or occult spiritual schools of thought like chaos magic or traditionalism, schools in which it is difficult to distinguish the human power to shape and persuade from the outright supernatural. So what, what, what they're looking at here is yeah. humans, if, if I can put it in theological terms, humans as creations and as creators. That yes. we, we, are, yeah. we are simultaneously part of the creation, but as images of God, we also shape the creation. We create, in very real sense, the world around us. So, so, so they're grasping at something that's real, but they just yes. don't get its real source. They have it backwards. They have it backwards. Yep. And this is, this is one of the things. Is, so you notice in this what happens. They'll admit we're part of the real world, but we are kind of the, the apogee of it, which is true. We are, we, we are the final created creature, right? There isn't something created after us and the rest. We are the image bearers. We are, as Corinthians Colossians will say, the glory of God. Conform to Christ. We are the glory of God in the world. Think about that. Reference that. Here, check this out. So what happens? They want to embrace the idealist side of the imagination, the romantic idealist side, what you call magical realism, novelist, or Coleridge. And they're right about that, that it, as, as we reiterate, as humans made in the image of God, what it is of God as a creator, as we take the creation we've been given dominance over and try to orient it towards and create and develop it in ways that are consistent with what it is as a reality. But it's fallen, of course, and the creation has thorns grown in it. But what we don't do is add to Coleridge Tolkien. Tolkien recognized as co-creators, we're co-creating with an objective reality that is out there that pushes up against us, that we aren't the creators of, and therefore it really isn't the conditions for us to be gods who put who order everything on the world, but it's actually the very condition and limit that we participate in that gives meaning and direction to our creative activity so that we're doing them in light of what it means to be a creature rather than trying to build a tower of Babel. That is fundamental, balancing Coleridge with Tolkien. That is kind of the way imagination in a Christian sense honors the fact that we're creatures, that we're not God, but we are image bearers of God and co-creators. Yeah, this, this gets me thinking about something that's on everybody's mind and has been for a few years, and it's the whole transgender thing, and we've talked about it ad nauseum. But uh, what we have is an unwillingness to receive and at the same time understanding that we still have responsibility to do something with what we've received. Yeah. So, so, you know, like when you think about the garden, obviously God makes the world, he speaks it into being, and then he tells Adam, you okay, it's your turn to talk, name the creatures. So there, yeah. is, there is something to that. And this is where 
the re- the reason why postmodern and sort of critical theory uh, theories uh, have some salience is that they do have yeah. that part right. There is there is something that we do, but it's within the framework. And this is where Tolkien comes in as yeah. sub creators. So yeah. yes, you are a woman. That's not up for grabs. You That's don't right. create yourself out of nothing. Nevertheless, what are you going to do with it? That's that's worth considering. What kind of woman will you be? Uh, How will you pursue the development of your femininity, of your capacity to be a mother? Um, What will you do with that stuff? That's that's where the freedom comes in. I, I, in in one of my books, I described it this way. It's like, okay, when you think about a a baseball game, um, you've got different players and they have positions. Um, the, the position that the player plays is not oppressive. Willie Mays did not say, I can no longer be a center fielder because it doesn't allow me to express myself. Yeah. <laughs> now there's, yeah. you know, what he did instead was he said, I'm a center fielder and I'm going to play center field in the way that only Willie Mays can play it. Yeah. And then everybody admires it. You know, yeah. look at what Willie Mays did. Look at what Millie Mays, what Willie Mays is, is capable of. He played center field like no one else. He didn't create center field out of nothing. He yeah, received he's, it. He's going with the grain. He's working with his endowments with right. the grain of reality. It's like uh, here's a, a, a quote. I, I don't have the the author here, but it says this reality reality with which we collide releases a word, an invitation, a meaning as if upon impact. So. Our engagement with the world is already meaningful because the world is giving us a word from its own reality. It's not something not known in itself, a Kantian hidden, but it manifests itself. The world, the, the world is like a word, a logos, which sends you further, calls you onto another beyond itself, further up. You know, and this is where the language analogy further right. up goes. Right. And so our capacity to work with that word that is given to us and cultivate it in accord with its nature and the potentials within it that are within our bounds is part of our capacity as 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 those endowed as co-creators to be able to develop the creation in 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 and be imaginative with it with potentialities that are there for us to manifest the riches and glories that are ingredient in it. I mean, think of music when it is able to actually hear heaven, if you will. Think of that. Um, and so what we have going on there is not us arbitrarily imposing our will on the world, but working with the grain of reality to open up the, it to dimensions of its connectedness to God that let the voice of the word manifest itself within it. That's a good place to stop. <laughs> we're, at, we're at the end of the show. Hey, we really appreciate your interest in the Theology Podcast. We really appreciate, too, that you are so interested. You made it to the end of this episode. <laughs> now, there are a couple things we want you to know. Uh, you, as a reward, get to know about where we're going to be in June. On June 14th, on Wednesday in Memphis, we are going to be there uh, at the PCA General Assembly. Uh, to conduct a couple of live podcasts, and you are invited. We're going to be at the Courtyard Marriott downtown Memphis, which is right next to the location of the PCA General Assembly. So you don't have to go very far if you're in the PCA and you're intending to to go to the assembly. It's just a short walk to where we'll be. And uh, on the 14th, which is a Wednesday, we'll begin at about 3 p.m. and we'll go to 7 p.m., which means the most dull part of the day when everybody is wondering what's for dinner, you can leave the assembly and go to someplace really cool where cool people are talking about cool things and not just simply book of church order sort of protocol. And you can spend some time with Glenn and Tom and me and our guests. We've got a couple of guests who are joining us. George Grant is going to be one of our guests. And then uh, Doug Groot. Groteist. That's how Groteist is going to be with us. And Doug is going to be talking about his latest book. Um, And so we're excited to to discuss that with him. So there's going to be a link in the show notes to some more information about being with us. You don't need to pay it, buy a ticket uh, or anything like that. You can just come to the event. Uh, There'll be uh, refreshments. There'll be um, time to fellowship, time to talk with us. And 
uh, time to uh, watch us kind of in action as we <laughs> record a couple of shows. So we've got a four-hour block. Another thing about that four-hour block is we end before the big PCA 50th anniversary celebration that takes that starts right next door. So it's not a it's not it's not a situation in which you have to choose. Do I go to the big uh, gala for the PCA or do I hang out with the podcast guys? You can do both. So uh, we'd love to see you. Uh, we'll have room for about 50 to 100 people, and that's for you to to sort of take note of. Also, another thing is uh, we've got uh, our own Patreon page, and we've had a number of people uh, come on to the page here recently and make a monthly pledge to the show, and we are very grateful for that. If you'd like to uh, check it out, you can go to uh, the link in the show notes that takes you to our Patreon page, and we... Uh, encourage you to consider a monthly gift to help underwrite the the show. Anyway, that's enough for me. Uh, We should probably uh, take a moment to just say goodbye at this point. So let's do that. Bye-bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, You might enjoy another of our podcasts, The Good Life Podcast, featuring Matt Carpenter interviewing experts in their field about how their work contributes to the good life.